Before They Were Beatles, Episode 4, Rory Men Old Before Our Birth. This is the story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1. September 1956. September meant a return to school after the long summer break. Time to renew friendships. The bus ride to the Liverpool Institute was the perfect opportunity for George and Paul to discuss their growing mutual interest in rock and roll and guitars. The return to school this year would also be of particular significance to John and to the foundation of what would eventually evolve into the Beatles. Perhaps the most controversial date amongst Beatles historians is the exact date of the founding of John Lennon's first group, the Quarrymen. John himself placed the date as being 1955, while several works place it in March 1957. However, the surviving Quarrymen, Eric Griffiths, Beat Shotton, Rod Davis, Colin Hanton and Len Gary, put the date as the period between September and October 1956. Len Gary's 1997 book provides the first real documented testimonial to the start of the Quarrymen from p- participants other than John Lennon, whose own recall of early events and dates was notoriously suspect. Rod Davis also confirmed that, quote, our latest thinking puts the start of the group in late 1956. According to Eric Griffiths, the idea of forming a band was suggested to John by a mutual friend called George Lee. All three were students at Quarrybank School, not far from their homes. Quarrybank was a traditional British grammar school of the period whose sole responsibility was to turn provincial boys into candidates for university. It was still run on traditional lines complete with a Latin motto, hoc ex metallo virtutum, out of this quarry cometh forth manhood, and a school song that all the new boys had to learn. Apparently, George Lee had noticed John's increasing fascination with the guitar and early in the new school year, September 1956, suggested to John that he might form a skiffle band of his own. John wasn't immediately struck by the idea. After all, John saw himself as a creative, unique individual, not a follower of fashion. But he began to mull over the idea and a few weeks later announced to Pete Shelton that he was thinking of starting a skiffle group. While he saw himself as a leader, John needed the support of those he felt closest to. Forming a group with a bunch of strangers with similar interests would never have occurred to him. Instead, he reached out to his friends. It'll be a laugh, John said, even if it doesn't come to anything. Let's just give it a try. John was okay as he had his guitar and knew a few basic chords, but Pete needed an instrument to play. In the best skiffle tradition, they scrounged up a couple of instruments by raiding the storeroom of Pete's mother's wool shop. The search yielded a washboard and a disused tea chest. With a discarded broom handle and a piece of string, the chest was soon converted into a typical skiffle bass. They now had three instruments, but only two players. John and Pete's search for an additional player for that nascent group returned to the only available source of talent, Quarrybank School. Asking around among their friends at school failed to solicit any volunteers, so John posted a notice asking for anyone interested in playing bass in a new skiffle group. He received only one reply from a kid named Bill Smith, who was instantly recruited. The trio once more made good use of the kindness of Pete Shotton's family by practicing in an old air raid shelter at the bottom of the Shotton Garden. In the immediate post-war years, air raid shelters were still common, with large communal ones built at the end of streets, while some houses had smaller ones built in the back gardens. 
Many of these lasted into the 60s and 70s, being converted into storage sheds, aquariums, potting sheds, etc. In fact, the post-war years in the UK were still a period of deprivation, with government-imposed austerity measures and food rationing a way of life. It was not surprising that teenagers growing up in this environment were attracted to the rebelliousness of rock and roll and the promises of a better life it seemed to exude. October 1956. By early October, around the time of his 16th birthday on the 9th, John was on the lookout for more talent to join his group. He made tracks to pull in Eric Griffiths, the only other guitar player at school, who lived about 15 minutes away from John in Halewood Drive on the other side of Walton Village. Eric, proud owner of a Dutch Egmond acoustic guitar, wasn't part of St. Peter's Sunday School crowd, only having arrived in Walton from Wales the year before starting at Quarrybank. However, the first day at Quarrybank, he found himself in Form 1R alongside John Lennon and Pete Shotton. Although a serious boy by nature, he and John bonded due to shared circumstances as Eric had lost his father, a pilot, during the war. Another albeit indirect target of John's overtures was his classmate Rod Davis. Rod was closer to Eric Griffiths than he was to John and he told Eric that he'd purchased a banjo. Rod's uncle had told him about a man in North Wales he knew who was selling a guitar. By the time Rod got there, the guitar had been sold but the man had a winter white Victor Supremo banjo for sale so Rod bought the banjo and Eric immediately invited him to join the fledgling group. Knowing that Rod had only just acquired his instrument, John and Eric set about teaching him their basic system of playing. This was to play everything in a single key, C, and, em and employ only three chords, C, F, G7. Early rehearsals were punctuated by Eric Griffiths shouting the chord changes to Rod as John sang. Rehearsals now alternated between the Shotton's air raid shelter and Eric Griffiths' home. During one such rehearsal, Eric mentioned that he had a friend who owned a set of drums. John immediately ordered Eric to go off and find his friend Colin, who he had met on a bus ride a few months earlier. Colin was different from John's other recruits in that he was older and had already left school the year before. He was two years older than John and lived on the other side of Walton at 4 Hayscroft Road, but none of that mattered to John. He had a drum set, and as time was to prove over and over again, finding a drummer was not the easiest thing in the world. Colin's precious £38 drum kit had been purchased from Hesse's with a portion of his wages as an apprentice upholsterer at a local furniture factory. Colin recalls that his call to arms happened one Sunday in the late summer of 1956 when there was a knock on his front door. It was Eric inviting him to a rehearsal at his house. So Colin packed up his John Gray Broadway drum kit comprising of a small bass drum, floor tom, tom tom, snare drum and cymbal and took it around to the house where he auditioned for John, Pete and a couple of other people who he can't recall. As Colin says, I played a bit on my drums and that was it. I was invited to join the group there and then. By the end of the rehearsal, Colin Hanton and his prized Broadway drum kit had joined the still unnamed band. Colin also supplied another practice venue as his house soon became the regular Saturday afternoon meeting place. The group struggled to come up with a name that they all could identify with and after a few suggestions agreed on the name The Blackjacks. It's been suggested that this name may have come from the fact that most of the group tended to wear a combination of black jeans and white shirts, fairly common garb for young rockers of the period. 
They obviously didn't identify with the name that strongly as within a week it had been changed to The Quarrymen. Inspired by both the name of the school which the majority of the group members attended and a line from the school song, Quarrymen Old Before Our Birth. Around the same time that the group decided on a name, it also went through its first major change in lineup. During mid to late October, Bill Smith had given up coming to rehearsals. When he failed to show, John's friends Ivan Vaughan or Nigel Wally would take his place. But the group needed a permanent reliable replacement and in late October 1956, Len Gary was asked to join. Len was the first member of the Quarrymen not to be a pupil at Quarry Bank nor live in Walton. Len lived at 77 Lance Lane in Wavertree, another middle class suburb of Liverpool. He had attended Moss Pitt's primary school when he was younger where Pete Shotton was in the year ahead of him, although neither recalls knowing each other at that point. Len proved to be a good student and passed the entrance qualifications for the prestigious Liverpool Institute where he became good friends with Ivan Vaughan and it was through this connection that he was drawn into John Lennon's sphere of influence having met him during the 1955 summer vacation period and eventually being invited to join the Quarrymen. Len didn't really want to play the T-Chess bass, he wanted to be the singer but John was firm about being the singer himself so Len settled for the bass. Unaware that his services were no longer required, Bill Smith took the T-Chess bass home with him after eventually turning up for a rehearsal. John and Pete Shotton ducked out of school for an afternoon to steal it back so it could be passed on to Len. And in a pattern that was to be repeated several times during the early development of the Beatles, John couldn't bring himself face the unfortunate Smith and ask somebody else, in this case Pete Shotton, to pass on the news of his dismissal. The songs rehearsed by the early Quarrymen were largely based on standard skiffle hits employed by any number of the thousands of amateur skiffle bands that were popping up all over Britain. Hits such as Rock Island Line, John Henry, Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O, Freight Train and Worried Man Blues. The addition of this latter song to the Quarrymen's repertoire was the catalyst for bringing to the fore John Lennon's unique skills at wordplay. Most of the songs were transcribed by listening to records or copying from the radio. In the case of this particular Burr Life song, the 78 RPM record that the group was using as source material was well worn and scratched, and as a result John had a hard time hearing the lyrics. Most people would have given up and dropped the song from their playlist, but not the Quarrymen and not John Lennon. John felt that it was the sound, not the words, that were important, so he set about replacing the words he couldn't make out with a few improvisations of his own. On occasion, he would even retitle a song, as he did when he transformed Streamline Train into the Quarrymen number Long Black Train. Rod Davis recalls that, What we did was listen to the latest singles when they were played on the radio and try to copy the words down. The trouble was, if you couldn't make them out or write them down quickly enough, you were stuck. So what John used to do was add his own words. No one ever seemed to notice because they didn't know the words either. While the month of October marked the birth of the Quarrymen, it also brought death into the life of a future member of the Beatles. For on October 31st, Mary McCartney, Paul's beloved mother, died suddenly of breast cancer. 
Desperate to protect her two sons, she had kept the illness secret until it was too late to do anything about it. She eventually was admitted into hospital just two days before her death. The impact on Paul and his family was immense, not only from an emotional but from a financial point of view. There is an often repeated story that Paul's reaction to the news of his mother's passing was, what are we going to do without her money? But perhaps more indicative of Paul's true reaction is that he now immersed himself in his music, letting his emotions play out in his songwriting, including penning his first song, I Lost My Little Girl. According to Paul's brother Mike, the elder McCartney, quote, lost a mother, but found a guitar. November 1956. As the Quarrymen were settling on a lineup and putting together their initial song list, the man responsible for their existence came to town. On the 5th, November 1956, Lonnie Donegan played the Liverpool Empire. Unable to get tickets for the event, Paul McCartney stood outside in the crowds around the stage door just to get a glimpse of his idol. From that moment on, Paul clamoured for a new guitar to replace the old Zenith. Despite their financial difficulties, his father Jim relented and traded it up for a £15 Rosati Lucky 7, which initially only had two strings. Despite this handicap, Paul and his guitar were now inseparable, and he took it everywhere, including the bathroom. Along with a renewed passion for the guitar, came a growing awareness of rock and roll music that soon replaced Paul's preference for old show tunes, although he has never lost that early love of a, quote, nice tune. Before long, Paul was joined by classmate Ian James in cycling around Liverpool dressed in Teddy Boy-style narrow drainpipe trousers with guitars strapped to their backs, searching out places to play. One person who did manage to attend the Donegan concert was a young George Harrison. In fact, George borrowed money from his parents and attended every show accompanied by his brother's girlfriend. Young George was so enamoured of Donegan and his music that when he found out that Lonnie Donegan was staying near his house in Speak, he went round and hammered on the door until he got the skiffle star to come out and actually give him his autograph. Now, man, ain't nothing but a man. But before I 
let your steam drill beat me down. I'm gonna die with a hammer in my hand. Oh no, gonna die with a hammer in my hand. Had your Henry told his captain, but a man ain't nothing but a man. But before I let your steam drill beat me down, I'm gonna die with a hammer in my hand. Oh no, gonna die with a hammer in my finished our first year in 1956 with the birth of the Quarrymen as the boys began to play. In the next episode we'll take a look at the first half of 1957 as other people and places start to enter our story. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or review on your favourite podcast platform that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, Lonnie Donegan, John Henry, The Vipers, Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O, Paul McCartney, I Lost My Little Girl, The Stanley Brothers and The Clinch Mountain Boys, Worried Man Blues. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode on the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I will add a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles or email me directly at alan, A-L-A-N, at beforetheywerebeatles.com. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4J's Group, LLC.